Our text today is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 29, actually two, two passages, Deuteronomy 29 verse 25 and then Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy 29.25 The Holy Spirit through Moses says, Then men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. And then verses 1-3 through of chapter 30. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee, this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. We continue this Lord's Day in our study of the Solemn League and Covenant, having seen in the last lecture that the Solemn League and Covenant was not merely a national covenant made with men, but was a perpetual national covenant made between God and man. Between the three kingdoms, of England, Ireland, and Scotland together as one party and with God as the other party. In previous sermons, we have already concluded from a biblical study of the descending obligation of national covenants that all of the posterity of the original covenanters are no less bound to keep a faithful national covenant than were the original covenanters who solemnly swore their, through their official and civil representatives and ecclesiastical representatives to be his people as a nation. For the Lord sees the children in a national covenant bound together with their parents, collectively with their parents, as one moral person throughout their succeeding generations in perpetuity. Whether with the Jewish nation, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 14 and 15, there we see how Moses says, speaking on behalf of God, that this covenant, this national covenant 
made with Israel is not simply made with those who are present, but is made with those who are not present. That is, the succeeding generations throughout history and to perpetuity. But likewise, we see that with Gentile nations, as we've noted in the past, national covenants, likewise, continue to bind posterity, all succeeding generations, as we noted in Amos chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. There with that brotherly national covenant between Tyre and Israel, wherein Solomon the head and representative of Israel covenanted with Hiram the head, the king of Tyre. And because of that brotherly covenant that was entered into, God continued 200 plus years later to hold Tyre to that covenant. And they broke that covenant and God brings judgment upon them, upon Tyre, for having broken that, that brotherly covenant, that national covenant with Israel. Well, let us turn to our text in Deuteronomy 29 as we consider the words of the Lord from this text. As we've noted in Deuteronomy 29, 10-15, Moses teaches that this national covenant between God and Israel is not a covenant made only with those adult covenanters who were living at that time but it is a national covenant made with even the little babies who were certainly and who certainly could not understand the terms of this covenant in their infancy and yet they were included in that covenant and so similarly god takes our infant children into covenant with himself and we apply the sign of that covenant of baptism to our children Moses then declares that if succeeding generations of Israel should cast off their covenant that was made with God, they shall be severely judged even to the point of being driven from their land and taken captive by heathen nations. We see that in Deuteronomy 29, verse 28 where we read, And the Lord rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land. <clears throat> the reason for this divine judgment of being removed from their land is clearly stated in Verse 25 of the same chapter, Deuteronomy 29:25, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. You see, dear ones, God's severe judgment may be spared for even hundreds of years, but obstinate covenant-breaking will issue forth 
in covenant judgment. For the passing of time, the relocation to another part of God's world, or even the denial or forgetfulness on the part of a covenanted people cannot alter a covenant between God and man. For God condescends to become a father to a covenanted nation. Never forget, dear ones, never forget that Israel as a nation was not only bound to keep God's commandments and to exercise the liberties granted to them by God because he was their sovereign creator, but also because he was their adopted father by covenant. And they were his adopted children as a nation by covenant. And a national covenant, God becomes a father by way of that national covenant to that nation and to all its posterity. Then continuing into Deuteronomy chapter 30, we observe that even though this covenanted nation of Israel should be scattered, quote, among all nations, end of quote, as we find in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, the Lord is still called Israel's God, even though they're under God's judgment, even though they're hundreds of, or perhaps thousands of miles away from their covenanted land, they are still called God's people while under judgment. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 and 2 and 3, we find the, the phrase, The Lord thy God. The Lord thy God. And we, in a previous ser sermon, emphasized that when we find that language, thy God, that is covenantal language. Because to call God our God is for God to call us his people. There is a covenant that is established. The Lord does not remain Israel's God, though they are dispersed, though they are scattered among all nations due to their unfaithfulness. The Lord does not remain Israel's God because of Israel and their covenant keeping or because of their faithfulness to God but because God is bound God is bound to Israel God has bound himself to Israel and Israel is bound to him by way of a gracious and merciful national covenant wherein God will in spite of Israel's hatred of even God's own dear beloved son will yet display for all of the world to see God's infinite mercy in not only taking the chief of sinners and making the chief of sinners a trophy of his redeeming grace as individuals, but will also take the chief of Christ-hating nations and bring that covenanted nation of Israel to be an ensign of undeserved love and mercy for all the world to see because of his covenant, his promises made in that covenant, that he has become their father, though they have rejected him. 
and spurned him. When Israel repents of their covenant breaking and renews their covenant to obey God's commandments, which they will do, and God willing in the very near future, then the Lord will once again show his abundant mercy upon his covenanted people and bring them into their ancient land where their borders will be preserved by God himself. Having looked at the text for today's sermon, I want to lay out two moral principles that can be derived from our text today. The first moral principle from our text. A national covenant is not extrinsic or unrelated to a nation and to its posterity, but is rather intrinsic and intimately related to the very nature of a nation and its posterity and to its fundamental laws and liberties. Thus, when a document refers to the fundamental laws and liberties of a covenanted nation, it is impossible. It is impossible that a lawful national covenant with God could be exempt from inclusion in that which is fundamental to that nation and to all its posterity. For a national covenant identifies who the people of that nation and all its posterity are in their civil, ecclesiastical, and individual capacities. They are the people of God, even if they don't act like it. By way of covenant, even if the work of grace has not been efficaciously worked within their lives, they are externally related to God by way of covenant. They are the people of God. The Lord is their God and they are his people. When God says that of Israel, that doesn't mean that every person within the nation was redeemed, was regenerated, was saved. But God views the whole nation as one moral person in all succeeding generations, likewise bound up with that nation and calls them all his people by way of covenant. And that's why we find again in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 and 2, the Lord thy God, the Lord thy God, the emphasis upon that, even though they are dispersed and scattered for their sin and rebellion, the Lord thy God. The question, therefore, is not whether a covenanted nation is owned by God as his people, The only question is whether that covenant nation and all its posterity are covenant keepers or covenant breakers. This is not only true of Israel, but it's true of Gentile nations as well, as we have noted of Egypt in Isaiah chapter 19, who will covenant with God as a nation in its official capacity. Likewise, Assyria and they will swear to be God's people. And God calls them, My people, Egypt, and my inheritance, Assyria. 
They will covenant. And so this, this concept is not, and what we've been talking about, these moral principles are not unique to Israel. They are, in fact, universal principles that apply, moral principles that apply to all nations. Though there are particular aspects of, of the, the law that God gave to Israel that are unique to Israel, as typical and pointing to Jesus Christ, particularly in their ceremonies. Nevertheless, there is a general equity. There are moral principles to the laws that God gave to them as it relates to them as a nation. And those moral principles apply to all nations. The second moral principle from our text is this. Even when relocated by force under God's judgment to another part of the world, a covenanted nation and all its posterity do not escape or do not cease to be identified by way of the national covenant made with God. The Lord is still their God and they are still his people by way of covenant even when they are thousands of miles away from the mother country and the motherland. And even unto a thousand generations. For we read in Deuteronomy 29:28, And cast them into another land. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, Among all the nations they still continue, though separated by many, many miles, oceans, continents, they are still his people. It is intrinsic to who they are and who they have become. They are God's people. They may be a covenant-breaking people, but they are his people. And God is their God. And therefore, when he judges them, he judges them righteously as covenant-breakers. And if people are bound by a national covenant, when forced from the mother country or from the motherland, as was Israel, they are no less bound when removed from the mother country or the motherland by choice freely. When they're not forced to leave, but they choose freely to leave, as were the greater part of the inhabitants of the English colonies. Just as Jonah could not flee far enough to where his covenant-keeping God did not see and did not remember his covenant with Jonah, so none of us who are bound by covenant with God through the covenant of grace, through our baptismal covenant, or through the solemn legal covenant, can flee or relocate ourselves far enough to where our covenant-keeping God does not see and does not remember his covenant with us. Well, let us now seek to answer, having looked at the scripture, let us now seek to answer some important historical questions that relate to the posterity of the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and to the fundamental laws of England, Ireland, and Scotland. I'm going to ask uh, at this point uh, two questions. Uh, we'll ask the first question and, and answer it, and then 
ask the second question and answer it. But the first question is this. Who are the posterity bound by the Solemn League and Covenant? According to the historical documents at that time, according to, to those who knew and, and spoke with regard to these issues, who are the posterity bound by the Solemn League and Covenant? We find in the Solemn League and Covenant the following references to posterity. This comes from the covenant itself, which indicates that this national covenant binds far more than simply the generation that was alive when it was originally sworn. Listen to these statements from the Solemn League and Covenant itself. First of all, having before our eyes the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the honor and happiness of the King's majesty and his posterity. It's not simply dealing with the magistrate that was then ruling, but with all of his posterity as well. So this covenant obviously transcends that particular time. It includes succeeding generations, all of those who would sit upon the throne of Britain are bound by this covenant as well. Or who would be magistrates, lesser magistrates as well. Another quote from the Solemn League and Covenant, this time from the first article that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love and the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us. We and our posterity after us. And then a third place where this is mentioned is in Article 5 of the Solemn League and Covenant. We shall each one of us according to our place and interest, endeavor that they may remain conjoined in a firm peace and union to all posterity. Not to the first generation of posterity, not to half of our posterity, not to most of our posterity, but to all of our posterity. Now, note who the quote-unquote all-posterity, as mentioned in the Solemn League and Covenant, includes. In a letter written by the Westminster Assembly and sent to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in the year 1644, the Westminster Assembly states, those winds which for a while do trouble the air do withal purge and refine it. And our trust is that through the most wise providence and blessing of God, the truth by our so long continued agitations will be better cleared among us. And so our service will prove more acceptable to all the churches of Christ, but more especially to you, 
while we have an intentive eye to our peculiar protestation and to that public sacred covenant that is the solemn legal covenant for uniformity for uniformity in all his majesty's dominions the Westminster Assembly said that the solemn legal covenant had the purpose was written for uniformity in all his majesty's dominions. Now, one would think that if anybody understood the meaning of posterity in the solemn legal covenant, the assembly of divines who gathered and that became the very first document they drafted and swore together with the House of Commons would understand what the meaning of all posterity was. They say it was for uniformity in all His Majesty's dominions. Now, consider with me. Unless the dominions referred to here are limited by name to specific dominions, the phrase, in all His Majesty's dominions, must include all dominions that had and should become a part of the British Empire under the rule of the British monarch. Not only did the Westminster Assembly understand the all-posterity bound by the solemnly and covenant to be, quote, all his majesty's dominions, but the faithful General Assembly of the Church of Scotland also officially declared the same thing to be true in their letter to King Charles I, written in 1648, where the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland says, As we do not oppose the restitution of your majesty, to the exercise of your royal power, so we must needs desire that that which is God's be given unto him in the first place, and that religion may be secured before the settling of any human interest. Being confident that this way is not only most for the honor of God, but also for your majesty's honor and safety. And therefore, as it was one of our desires to the high and honorable court of parliament, that they would solicit your majesty for securing of religion and establishing the the solemn league and covenant in all your dominions. in all your dominions. Furthermore, observe that not only did the Westminster Assembly and the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland interpret the quote-unquote all posterity bound by the Solemn League and Covenant to be those who lived within the bounds of 
quote-unquote, all his majesty's dominions, but it was likewise interpreted to be the case by the Parliament of Scotland. In a letter to King Charles I, dated April the 29th, 1648. Now, before I read this, again, remember, the legal phrase, the legal phrase, in all his majesty's dominions, that is used in this letter, cannot be limited to the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland alone unless those kingdoms were the only ones called the dominions of his majesty, which we will see in a future sermon was far from being the case. Let us hear then what the parliament in Scotland said to King Charles I. They said, before any agreement or condition be made with his majesty, having found his late concessions and offers concerning religion not satisfactory, that he give assurance by his solemn oath under his hand and seal that he shall, for himself and his successors, for all his posterity, all of those who would reign or rule, Thereafter, give his royal assent and agree to such act or acts of parliament or bills as shall be presented to him. And by this time, parliaments in England and, and Scotland had already sworn the Solemn League and Covenant, so they were ready to give the Solemn League and Covenant to the king. For enjoining the League and Covenant and fully establishing presbyterial government, directory of worship, confession of faith, where? In all his majesty's dominions. And that his majesty shall never make any opposition to any of these, nor endeavor any change thereof. Pretty absolute and unlimited language in all his majesty's dominions. <clears throat> Moreover, King Charles II swore as the King of Great Britain, June the 23rd, 1650, and bound himself and his successors, just as his father had done, so Charles II likewise did, bound his successors to the throne to enact the Solemn League and Covenant not only in Scotland, but also, quote, unquote, in the rest of my dominions. Again, since there is no stated limitation as to which dominions are in view, this legal language cannot be limited to two or three dominions but must include all the rest of his majesty's dominions throughout the whole world, besides Scotland, besides England, besides Ireland. And this is what we find Charles II swearing. This is the oath that he swore. I, 
Charles, King of Great Britain, France and Ireland, do assure and declare by my solemn oath in the presence of the Almighty God, the searcher of hearts, my allowance and approbation of the National Covenant and of the Solemn League and Covenant above written, and faithfully oblige myself to prosecute the ends thereof in my station and calling, and that I for myself and successors shall consent and agree to all acts of Parliament in joining the National Covenant and Solemn League and Covenant, and fully establishing Presbyterial government, the Directory of Worship, Confession of Faith, and Catechisms in the Kingdom of Scotland as they are approved by the General Assembly of this Kirk and Parliament of this Kingdom. And that I shall give my royal assent to the Acts of Parliament in joining the same in the rest of my dominions. And that I shall observe these in my own practice and family and shall never make opposition to any of these or endeavor any change thereof. Now he became a very heinous and treacherous covenant breaker. But that was what he swore unto Almighty God. Compare the language, and especially the words, all his majesty's dominion, that we have just been looking at in relationship to the Solemn League and Covenant. I'd like to take another document that doesn't have anything to do with the Solemn League and Covenant, a legal document that has nothing to do with the Solemn League and Covenant, but uses the same language. And you tell me why someone in this other document would interpret that to mean anything other than all the dominions of his majesty throughout the world. And why they then would take the language, the same language that refers to the Solemn League and Covenant, and say that that only refers to England, Ireland, and Scotland. This is the document. It was an oath of allegiance to King James I, And this is what the oath says. I, and then the person's name, do truly and sincerely acknowledge, profess, testify, and declare in my conscience before God and the world that our sovereign Lord, King James, is lawful and rightful king of this realm, that is England and of all other his majesty's dominions and countries. Now, why would that language be limited to England, Ireland, and Scotland? And if one is going to say that refers to all of the dominions within the British Empire over which the king ruled, why the language related to the Solemn League and Covenant isn't the same. It has to, because this is legal, legal language. There are no limitations stipulated. Thus, I conclude from this brief survey that the intended posterity that are bound by the Solemn League and Covenant include those within, quote-unquote, all His Majesty's dominions. We will, in the next sermon 
God willing, clearly demonstrate that the colonies in America and Canada were certainly called in various legal documents His Majesty's Dominions. Thus bringing not only the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland into covenant with the Lord, but also bringing the dominions and colonies of North America into covenant with God by way of the Solemn League and Covenant. The second question. The second question is this. And a very important question as well. Was the Solemn League and Covenant included among the fundamental laws and liberties of Britain to which all subjects of the king were bound? Let me repeat the question. Was the Solemn League and Covenant included among the fundamental laws and liberties of Britain to which all subjects of the king were bound? And again, just to uh, preface, when we get to looking at the colonies, we're going to find that same language that the colonies are entitled to the fundamental laws and constitution that all the citizens of England are entitled to, the fundamental laws. What are fundamental laws of a kingdom as understood in English jurisprudence? William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the laws of England, written between 1765 and 1769, defined the fundamental laws of England as, quote, the absolute rights of every Englishman, end of quote. Such legitimate fundamental laws def defined an Englishman's God-given rights in these major areas. And I list four areas. Just, again, broad areas. But the fundamental laws, those that were, were legitimate fundamental laws defined for every Englishman these God-given moral rights. First of all, in the practice of the one true religion. Matters related to that. Second, in personal property, various types of moral laws that related to personal property. Third, in impartial justice, fundamental laws related to impartial justice. And fourthly, in lawful civil government in lawful civil government. Those four major categories are that which pertain to the fundamental laws of England. Now, I want to make a distinction between fundamental laws and municipal laws. Whereas fundamental laws pertain to all Englishmen whether they reside in England or in any other part of His Majesty's dominions. William Blackstone 
himself even makes this distinction. Municipal laws were civil laws that pertained to only those living in the kingdom of England or those jurisdictions that were specifically represented in the English parliament. Clearly, the municipal laws of England did not govern all his majesty's dominions throughout the world. But the fundamental laws of the English constitution did govern all his majesty's dominions. Was the Solemn League and Covenant among the fundamental laws and government of England? The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland condemned the sectarians in England for having subverted the fundamental, quote-unquote, the fundamental government of England by having broken the Solemn League and Covenant. They, the General Assembly, writes in the year 1649, that prevailing party of sectaries in England who have broken the covenant and despised the oath of God corrupted the truth, subverted the fundamental government and taken away the king's life. That is, Charles I was executed by that Cromwellian parliament in 1649. But there, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland very clearly states that having broken the covenant, they subverted the fundamental government and laws of that nation of England. Without disputation, that law, covenant, or constitution that a magistrate is required to swear by oath before he can assume the exercise of civil power must be considered fundamental to the laws and liberties of that nation. The Solemn League and Covenant was required by Parliament to be sworn by both Charles I and Charles II before they could exercise their royal power. Charles I did not swear it before he was executed. However, Charles II did swear it, as has already been noted. And parliaments of the three kingdoms had already sworn it previously as well. Since the Solemn League and Covenant brought the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and all their posterity, and all his majesty's dominions, into covenant with the living God, those kingdoms and all their posterity, particularly in all his majesty's dominions, could not cease to be covenanted to God. They could just not choose not to be covenanted to God. God establishes covenants. When one covenants with God, one can't just simply say, I don't, I don't want to be covenanted with God anymore. Because God will hold us to the covenants we make when they are made with him directly. He's an avenger of his covenants. The only question was whether they would be covenant 
keepers or covenant breakers. Such a covenant relationship between God and kingdoms and all their posterity and all his majesty's dominions, as I've said, is absolutely intrinsic to who such a covenanted people are and how they are to conduct themselves. These kingdoms might unlawfully pretend to rescind the solemn leaking covenant as did the treacherous Charles II. He burned that sacred solemn covenant. They may pretend to rescind the solemn leaking covenant in the courts of Britain, but the everlasting God confirms the solemn league and covenant upon Britain and all, upon all its posterity, particularly in his ma- all his majesty's dominions in the court of heaven. God confirms his covenant in the court of heaven even when men deny, disown, and re- seek to rescind that solemn league and covenant in the courts here upon the earth. Whether ecclesiastically or whether civilly they rescind, ignore, forget, deny, disown. God owns his covenants. Consider this analogy in closing. A couple who are citizens of Britain legally covenant to become the adoptive parents of a child. They are legally his parents and he is legally their child as much as if he were their natural born child he is their child when the adopted child becomes an adult he decides to relocate to the United States does the legal covenant of adoption end once he travels across the ocean of course not Does he have to be adopted all over again? Afresh and anew in the United States? Of course not. He has been adopted. But what if he subsequently becomes a citizen of the United States? Does he have to be adopted all over again? He's no longer a citizen of Great Britain, of England. No. He doesn't have to be adopted again. That adoption remains secure and firm. His adoption is recognized even by this country. And even if it were not recognized by this country, would that change the inherent morality and the legal, before God, that relationship established between that, those parents and that child? Of course not. Man can seek to deny, can seek to remove covenants all the time. But it's, that was still a moral covenant, a lawful covenant. And regardless of what this nation thinks legally about that covenant, it remains the same. You see, there are even nations recognize such legal covenants between parents and children. How much more, dear ones, does the covenant of adoption God makes with the nation and all its posterity in all his majesty's dominions not cease to bind just because the posterity travels across the ocean or becomes a citizen 
or become citizens of a new nation. If covenants between men, like a legal adoption, so bind, so securely bind, how much more a covenant between God and men, wherein God becomes a father to a whole nation, and a nation becomes his children by way of a national covenant. Beloved, we are a covenant-breaking nation. And this land is sadly filled with covenant-breaking churches that could, quite frankly, care less about a covenant made some 365 years ago. But, dear ones, there is no higher privilege for man than to be in covenant with God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Let us serve him, therefore, with thankful hearts that he has condescended in grace and mercy to enter into covenant with such undeserving and unworthy sinners as you and me. And let us serve him with reverential fear recognizing that he is the Lord, the Master in this covenant. Let us not treat the Lord of the covenant with contempt by thinking that the mere passage of time or relocation to another continent removes us from the perpetual covenant of our forefathers. This is to treat the Most High God as if he were a mere man who cannot reach us when we move far from one nation to another or who forgets solemn covenants made unto him with the passage of time. None of us perfectly keeps covenant with the Lord. And that is why we must daily fall upon the mercy and grace of our covenant keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to his righteousness and his obedience as our ground of acceptance before him. His righteousness alone, his covenant keeping alone, his obedience, his sacrifice alone is our salvation. It is not a mere covenant that saves us. But we show our thankfulness, we show our love for him through our willing and cheerful obedience to his covenant by which we are bound. And it is, as I said, the highest privilege that any of us could possibly have to be in covenant with the Lord our God. We evidence our love for the Lord and our thankfulness to him by not merely taking the name of a covenanter. It's easy to take a name. I'm a covenanter. But by living in faith and in love as a covenanter. Let us stand in prayer. Our gracious God and Savior, our covenant-keeping God, Thou who has 
condescended to covenant with us, O Lord, in the covenant of grace and from that, O Lord, in our baptismal covenant and in the solemn league and covenant and even in our personal covenants with Thee. O Lord our God, we thank Thee and praise Thee for Thou being high and holy are most merciful and gracious. And O Lord, we would have no relationship with Thee if it were not for Thy covenant with us. We would, Lord, simply fall under the wrath, the just wrath and condemnation of a holy God who is our Creator. For we have sinned against Thee in thought, word, and deed. But because Jesus Christ has fulfilled Thy covenant, which we could not keep, even that covenant which Adam did not keep, O Lord, we rest ourselves in Him, for He is our city of refuge. We flee into Him and find safety and salvation forevermore. We pray, our Lord, that Thou would, would renew us this day, that we would take a fresh new look at all the covenants into which we have entered and by which we are engaged, and that we would not, Lord, be those who are simply covenanters in name, but that we would be those who are covenanters in faith and love to Jesus Christ. We pray, our Lord, that thou would hear us, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.